We're looking at 1 Kings chapter 1 this evening. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that from the other side of the resurrection, the other side of Easter, we can look at David in the light of fulfillment and completion. David, who is greater than the David of history, the David who lives even as we consider this David who dies. We ask your blessing upon our time with your word and the guidance of your spirit as we unlock the treasures of the inspired word from heaven. We thank you in the name of the eschatological David, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. First Kings opens with the death of David imminent. The final act in the drama of the shepherd of Israel is contained in two scenes. The curtain falls on the life of King David in scene one, First Kings one, and in scene two, First Kings two. A drama which folds into itself the end in the beginning, the beginning in the end. David's end, Solomon's beginning. The continuity in this narrative of the monarchy is the transition from father to son. Does that suggest a narrative ripple to you, an echo, indeed a mirror of a former revelatory drama come to fulfillment in these latter days, latter days of the life of David, inaugural days of the life of Solomon. The curtain fall, the final act of the life of David is the curtain rise, the initial act of the life of David's son. As this protological David yields the stage to the prince of Shalom, the prince of peace, the ongoing eschatological quest proceeds apace. Is the protological prince of peace the eschatological prince of peace? Is the protological Solomon the eschatological Solomon? And history's reply is not yet. Now the protological Solomon, not yet the eschatological Solomon. It is the rippling echo of the quest for the eschatological David. Is the protological David the eschatological David? And history's reply re-echoes, not yet. Echoes and re-echoes until the fullness of time. Echoes and re-echoes until history replies, not yet is now. Not yet 
is now, and protological is displaced by eschatological. Protological is displaced and replaced by eschatological. History echoing and re-echoing the end of the age. Eschatological Solomon displaces protological Solomon as eschatological David replaces protological David. The transition in history which the final act of 1 Kings 1 and 2 reveals lays before us the interface between the protological and the eschatological. And as that transition in the history of the former era reveals itself in its ephemeral glory, its impermanence, its inability to abide, to remain, to not decay, to not decline, to not pass away, so that transition prophesies itself in a better era of everlasting glory, unshakable permanence, abiding, remaining eternally, never to decay, never to decline, never to pass away. The transition here in 1 Kings 1 and 2 prophesies a history when a greater than Solomon will be on the stage and the curtain will rise upon he that is, Matthew 12, 42. When a greater than David will raise the curtain on the last and final shepherd of Israel, Son of Solomon, Son of David, Son of God. As we approach the narrative of 1 Kings 1 this evening, we want to examine the text for structural patterns. And we ask ourselves the question, is there a discernible structure to this chapter? Let's begin by considering several possibilities. One element in narrative analysis is location. That is, where is the narrative drama taking place? And as we examine 1 Kings 1, we note that the location of the narrative drama is Jerusalem. But where in Jerusalem specifically? You will notice that it is the palace or house of David. But even more specifically, where in the palace of David is the drama of this chapter occurring? And verse 15 indicates to you that it occurs at least initially in the bedchamber. Well, are there any other locations in this drama of chapter 1? Yes, there are other locations in Jerusalem. In this case, in the streets of Jerusalem, outside the palace, 
outside of David's bedchamber, as you will notice from verse 5. Are there other locations specified in this chapter? In other words, do we have camera shifts from one location to another? And you will notice from verse 9, and also implicit in verse 41, the the little location of En-Rogel. And if you look at your map and your handout, you will notice that En-Rogel is outside the southern wall of Jerusalem at the confluence of the Valley of Kidron and the Valley of Hinnom. Well, are there any other locations in Jerusalem? We've noted that there is a location in the palace, but not the bedchamber, if you will consult verse 11. And how do we know that it is not the bedchamber? Because of verse 15. That location is Bathsheba's apartment or residence within the palace. Are there yet other locations? Yes, and you will observe Gion, another small location, uh, actually uh, east of the east gate to Jerusalem, just below a small spring. And your map also points that location out, as you will observe. And finally, There is one other Jerusalem location that we ought to note. It, too, is within the palace confines of David's house. And I am referring to the throne room, which is indicated in verse 30, 35, 48, and 53. As you can see, there are a plethora of locations in this chapter, so that we may ask ourselves, is the narrator structuring the chapter on the literary pattern of shift in location? Or is there something more fundamental? Well, let us consider another structuring paradigm asking the question, what is the dominant genre of this chapter? Most of the drama within chapter 1 unfolds by way of dialogue, you will observe, conversation. In fact, the larger part of this chapter is dialogue, encompassing verses 11 to 48. I want to point out something about the dialogue in this chapter so that when we begin with verse 11 and conclude with verse 48, I want you to observe a particular paradigm that seems to come out of the dialogic genre. The first conversation that begins in verse 11 is Nathan's approach to Bathsheba which ends in verse 14. And then Bathsheba, in verse 17, begins a conversation with David, which ends in verse 21. Please notice that one of the speakers in the first conversation 
is a speaker in the following or ensuing conversation. In this case, Bathsheba, in verse 11, replays herself in verse 17. And as that second conversation ends in verse 21, our next conversation begins in verse 24 when Nathan enters and speaks to David. And you will notice that once again, one of the persons in the previous dialogue, namely David, is a speaker in the subsequent dialogue, namely the conversation between Nathan and David in verses 24 through 27. Then David summons Bathsheba in verse 29, and a small conversation ends in verse 30. But again, David is a spokesman in this uh, fourth conversation as he was in the third or previous one. Our next conversation is in verse 33, where David addresses Zadok, Nathan, and Benaiah, a conversation which ends in verse 35. And then, quite interestingly, notice that the next conversation is that of Benaiah in verse 36, a conversation which includes David and closes in verse 37, so that Benaiah, who was involved in the conversation in verses 33 to 35, is the subsequent spokesman in the conversation of verses 36 to 37. Finally, we will notice the approach of Joab in verse 41. Joab addresses Adonijah in that passage, and then Adonijah in verse 42 addresses Jonathan, and Jonathan in verse 43 addresses Adonijah. The Adonijah link in verses 41 and 42, succeeded by the Jonathan link in verse 42 and 43, ties this dialogic section together, even as the concatenation paradigm ties the previous conversations together. My point is that we have a concatenation or linkage pattern between the individuals or one of the individuals in the conversations throughout this very lengthy section, verse 11 to 48. It is somewhat like a chain link fence where one individual is succeeds himself in the next scene by speaking to other individuals in the drama. Is this concatenation pattern of dialogue sequence, the literary pattern which structures 1 Kings chapter 1, is our narrator linking us from one speaker to another as he follows the thread of the unfolding drama from verse 11 to 48, or is there something more fundamental? One more suggestion. As we're thinking about this matter of conversation or dialogue, what happens in verse 11? Nathan brings news 
to Bathsheba. What happens in verse 42? Jonathan brings news to Adonijah. What happens in verse 51? Someone brings news once again. Bringers of news or information provide another possible structural pattern for this chapter. Is the chapter structured by our narrator around those figures or around those incidents in which news or information is brought to those who do not know that news. We would then break up the chapter in verses 1 to 10, part 1, verses 11 to 41, part 2, verses 42 to 50, part 3, and verses 51 to 53, part 4. Do we structure the chapter on the basis of those who relay information and the information relayed, or is there something more fundamental? Let's ask ourselves, what is the central drama of 1 Kings 1? Surely, as we step back from reading this chapter, we observe the conflict or the contrast between Adonijah and David. What is common to both aspects of this antithetical or contrastive drama? The center of the contrast is the act of coronation. Where? At Enrogel, and then also at Gion, or Gion Spring. Well, let's ask ourselves, in the light of the conflict or contrastive or antithetical drama, what is occurring at Enrogel? It is an anti-coronation, an anti-coronation. And what is occurring at Gion? It is a coronation. And so we may ask ourselves, does opposition and opposition dramatics structure this chapter? Adonijah versus Solomon, as well as Adonijah versus David. That certainly jumps out at us, namely the opposition between the father and the son and the other usurping son. Are there other opposites in this chapter? And may we structure the chapter in a subsidiary way in terms of the tension between these opposites. Who is opposite Abishag? Well, you say Bathsheba, and that is correct. Now, who is opposite Nathan? And you may say Joab, and yet notice verse 7. Notice how the narrator has written verse 7 and verse 8. Joab, son of Zeruiah, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. 
Joab is opposed to Benaiah. Joab is not opposed to Nathan. Then who is the counterpart of Nathan in 1 Kings 1? There is none. He has no counterpart. You see, there is no prophet with Adonijah. The Lord's prophet stands beside David and Solomon. So he stands alone without a counterpart in the narrative. Well, you will look at the invitation lists which Adonijah sends out, and you will notice that we have opposition between those who are invited, the Adonijah party, and those who are uninvited, the Solomon party. Once again, opposition within the narrative. And what about the oath? What about the solemn oath? The oath which David takes to Solomon or for Solomon as opposed to the fact that there was no oath sworn to Adonijah. We also want to observe the opposition between the drama inside the palace and the drama outside the palace, particularly the drama at Gihon versus the drama at Enrogel. May we therefore say that this chapter is structured on the basis of antithetical or contrastive opposition. Or is there something more fundamental? After all of this exercise of considering the options, we ask ourselves, is the fundamental structure of 1 Kings 1 this concatenation of opposition, this snowballing antithesis between David and Solomon on the one hand and Adonijah and Joab on the other, this dramatic contrast between the heir to the throne by sacred oath and the usurper, the upstart, the opportunist. But before... I provide my own answer to the question of the structure of 1 Kings 1. Let's review the narrative ripples that are present in this chapter. I have suggested throughout this series that the rippling narrative of the David story ebbs and flows with little rivulets, Little, little outflows of connection with previous and subsequent dramatic expressions and narratives. Let's begin with Adonijah and ask, are there narrative ripples with respect to Adonijah in 1 Kings 1? And verse 5 sends you back to 2 Samuel 15, 1, with words that are virtually a duplication of what Absalom himself did, Adonijah, and his attempt to seize the throne from Solomon reminds us of Absalom 
and his attempt to seize the throne from David. Our narrator even uses an explicit near exact duplication to score that point. Next, we observe Nathan, whose presence here ripples back to his first appearance in the David drama. In 2 Samuel 7, the prophecy of the father-son relationship and the covenant with the house of Judah, and his reappearance in 2 Samuel 12 with his famous parable of the ewe lamb and his divine mediated rebuke to the sinner David. And what should we say of Bathsheba, who has not appeared since her ignominious appearance in 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12, Bathsheba here ripples back to that black spot upon her own character and David's as well. And then there is the little uh, location of Enrogel at the southeastern portion of uh, outside of Jerusalem, Enrogel, which also ripples backward to Second Samuel 17, verse 17, where Jonathan, son of Abiathar, who reappears in this chapter, First Kings 1, and Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, who does not appear in First Kings 1, where the two of them are part of David's spy network to keep David informed of Absalom's movements in Jerusalem as David flees the city, particularly to keep David informed of the council of Hushai, with which the council of Ahithophel is defeated. And so we have been to Enrogel once before. Or take the matter of the opposition to David here in 1 Kings 1, it ripples backwards to the opposition to David from Ishbosheth to Absalom to Shiva. We have a narrative ripple replaying itself once again as David lays upon his deathbed. And what about Abiathar, who first appeared as the survivor of the slaughter of the priest of Nob in 1 Samuel 22? Here, Abiathar replaying his drama as the priest of the Lord, but replaying it in an uncomplimentary fashion. And Zadok, his counterpart, Zadok, whom we have met in 2 Samuel 8, 17, 15, 24, and following 17, 15, who too was a part of that spy network which David established, including Jonathan and Ahimaaz after David was banished from Jerusalem. Well, the narrative ripples remind us of the integrity of the narrative, the, over, the on-flowing narrative integrity, which recapitulates itself in certain ways 
I'm not suggesting that the narrator or the author of 1 Kings 1 is, in fact, the same as the author of the Samuel Corpus. I'm not saying he is not, but I am inclined to think that he isn't, though I'm not dogmatic about that observation. Let me, therefore, present my proposal for the structure of 1 Kings 1. It is contained on your handout, and you can follow as I outline it. And you may want to label the individual sections, which I do not have labeled on the outline as we proceed. Label them on the left-hand margin, uh, in which you will see what I think is a sequence which is quite poignant and significant. First of all, we are looking for structural duplications. We're looking for patterns of symmetry, which may in fact unlock the structural relation of this uh, long first chapter of First King, Kings. Beginning in verse 1, and also observing verse 3 as part of the connection with verse 1, we notice the phrase, the king, the word, he is old, and in verse 3, Abishag, the Shunammite. That pattern is duplicated in verse 15, where you see the phrase, the king again, he is called old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, is named once again. There is an evident bracket between verses 1 slash 3 and verse 15, which enfolds, verse 5, the name Adonijah, son of Hagiz. And in verse 11, that name reappears in exactly the same style. Then we notice next, in verse 8, Benaiah and Nathan the prophet, Listed in that verse, and in verse 10, we have Nathan the prophet and Benaiah in that order. In fact, in reverse order, we have a chiastic reversal of the order of Benaiah and Nathan in verses 8 and 10. In closing, verse 9, sandwiching verse 9, which is the description of the anti-coronation and the acclaim, long live King Adonijah. These first 15 verses may be labeled the event. In fact, the focus on the central event of those verses, the anti-coronation, which is at the center of the chiastic pattern of the whole verses, whole of verses 1 to 15. Now, the next section begins in verse 16, where we notice the sequence Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself. That phrase or that pattern is duplicated in verse 31, where once again Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself. The frame then of this next unit of the narrative encloses verses 16 to 31 in which the event is reported. The report of the event is delivered 
to David. And at the center of that report is verse 25, where the acclaimed long-lived King Adonijah is repeated. Now, the report of this event is analeptic. That is, it is looking back to the occurrence of the event. It has already happened, and so it is being presented as a fait accompli. Analepsis meaning to look back towards. So you may label that section on the left-hand side of the outline, report of the event, analeptic report. Which brings us to verse 32, where you see the sequence, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a sequence which is duplicated in verse 38. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. We have another framing pattern for the structure of this chapter, a framing pattern which places at the center, verse 34, the very antithesis of the center of verses 16 to 31 and 1 to 15. Long live King Solomon as over against long live King Adonijah. Now the event here in verses 32 to 38 has not occurred yet. It is proleptic. David is giving instructions here. So this section may be labeled on the left-hand side of your outline projection of the event prolepsis in contrast to analepsis in the previous portion. Proleptic meaning it's to come. It is anticipated. Now that brings us to verse 39. Well, you'll notice the phrase, all the people, which is duplicated in verse 30. All the people. And that sandwiches verse 39d, the acclaim, long live King Solomon. In other words, this is the record of the event of the coronation of Solomon, and it is sandwiching that acclaim duplicated once again from verse 34, long live King Solomon. You may label the left-hand side of your outline on verse 39 to 40, the event again. But this time, a contrastive event from that in verses 1 to 15. Now, verse 41. Notice the phrase, Adonijah, followed by all the guests. And look down to verse 39, and you will notice the phrase, all the guests and Adonijah. Notice the chiastic reversal of the order of those terms. Adonijah first in 41, Adonijah last in 49, all the guests second in 41, all the guests first in 49, the chiastic reversal sandwiches, verse 46, where Solomon is seated upon the throne. What's going on in this section? It is the report of the event, namely the report of the coronation of Solomon. It is an analepsis, again, another analeptic paradigm where what has occurred is being reported to those who are unaware of it. 
So you may label the left-hand side of the margin of your outline at verses 41 and 49, report of the event analepsis or analeptic. We conclude with verses 50 to 53. Notice the very interesting sequence here. Adonijah in verse 50. Solomon arose and went. Referring to Adonijah. Verse 53. Solomon the personal pronoun him, which refers to Adonijah, notice the verb prostrated, and then the verb went, which is translated here, go, in the present tense, in verse 53, but it is the same Hebrew root, same Hebrew lemma for the word went in verse 50. And sandwiched between the two in verse 51 and 52, is the word die, which occurs twice in those verses. We have another event, but this event, which describes Adonijah's arising and prostrating himself before Solomon, this event is ominously proleptic. So you may label the left-hand side of your outline at verses 50 to 53, the event, but ominously proleptic. Notice the sequence. From verse 1 to 53, we have the sequence of event, analepsis, prolepsis, event, analepsis, prolepsis. The sequence is symmetrically regular, and therefore, with all due respect to the commentators and others who have not succeeded in pointing out any integral structure to 1 Kings chapter 1, I submit my own feeble effort as a possibility. Have at it if you wish. One more thing to note about the literary style of our inspired author and narrator. In this first chapter of 1 Kings 1, he has a demonstrable penchant for duplication, for repetition, for symmetry of vocabulary or even phrase, parallelism in terminology and expression. I will give you a few examples, but I point it out as one of the potential indicators of our narrator's style and something to examine throughout the king's corpus, both first and second kings. Look for the patterns of symmetrical duplication and see if, in fact, the narrator consistently follows that motif throughout the book. I'm not prepared to answer that question because I haven't done the work on the Hebrew text beyond chapter 2 of 1 Kings, but nonetheless I raise it as a suggestion of how the book has its own literary integrity. And in fact, it'd be a defense of the unity of authorship 
of First and Second Kings, which, of course, is ridiculed by liberal commentators. But back to our point of noticing some of this symmetrical duplication in chapter 1, verse 2, the phrase, Lord the King, also duplicated in that second verse. Verse 2 again, the word nurse, as it's translated in some of your versions, an infelicitous translation because of what it suggests to the modern mind. It should be better translated attendant, and you will notice that word again in verse 4, the duplication of Abishag as David's attendant. Verse 3, the description of her as beautiful, repeated in verse 4. And now skipping down to verse 17, the expression Lord God, which is duplicated in verse 30, Lord God. And finally, David's uh, imperative in verse 28, call to me, which is found also in verse 32, call to me. There are many other duplications in this chapter, but this gives you a sampling of some of them. The narrator uses his own style of literary artistry to recount the story of his opening chapter, and we have determined that he does have this uh, flair for using repetitive duplications. Well, let's step back from this analysis of structure and looking at uh, literary style and ask ourselves, what is the plot of this first chapter? What is the narrative plot of 1 Kings 1? Every narrative drama has a plot, and 1 Kings 1 is no exception to that dramatic paradigm. Our exploration of the structure of this chapter may have seemed a little tedious, but nonetheless, it is touched upon the plot structure of the narrative in the background. And in fact, structure is unto unlocking the sequence of plot analysis. So now I want to reflect more particularly on that specific issue. I'm going to suggest that the plot of 1 Kings 1 is revealed in the final scene of this chapter, verses 50 to 53. You may wonder what I have in mind, or more importantly, what our author has in mind if I suggest that the plot is in fact revealed at the end of the chapter, but this is what I mean. You will notice the upward and downward vector arrows. Notice in verse 50 that Adonijah arose. And notice verse 53, Adonijah prostrates himself. The upward and downward narrative vectors are reflective of the mirror plot dramatized in this chapter. In fact, this upward and downward arrow, that is, the arising and prostrating or humbling of Adonijah himself, is a reflection of the mirror drama of the entire chapter. Adonijah exalting himself, David puts him down 
Solomon exalted in his coronation, Adonijah put down. Solomon exalted on his throne, as David is exalted on his throne. And in verse 53, Adonijah humbly put down, prostrating himself before the throne of David's son Solomon. So this plot paradigm of the exaltation and humiliation of the characters in the drama brings us another narrative ripple, another plot ripple from that which we have observed from the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2. The plot of 1 Kings 1 unfolds the reverse paradigm of arrogant, ungodly exaltation countered or opposed by vigilant, godly humiliation. Adonijah vaunts himself only to be confounded, abased, and abandoned by God the Lord, his anointed, and his anointed son. The Lord, his prophet, and his ordained priest are the instruments of preserving God's covenant promise to the house of David that one son, one son beloved of the Lord, Yadadiah, one son beloved of the Lord, is the messianic successor. God seals his own pledge. God seals his own oath by prophetic action, by priestly unction, by royal declaration, and by public coronation. Contrary to the majority of modern interpreters, there is no deceit, nor is there any contrivance. There is no fabrication of a myth of Solomonic succession here. No. To suggest that Nathan and Bathsheba have conspired to manipulate a befuddled and near senile aged David is a travesty of reading modern realpolitik back onto the text as well as a slander of God's holy prophet, his holy priest, as well as a deconstruction of the aged David. When will modern Bible commentators read the text as it is and stop reading the text as an ancient expression of the modern politics of the corrupt rulers of the United States and the world? David is very much in charge. He is very much in charge of circumstances in this chapter as any honest reading of his speeches on these pages will indicate. But every liberal commentator regards this chapter as a fabrication or an invention or a reconstruction from a later age. In fact, one of the most recent liberals famous for his Debunking of the Bible, John Van Cedars has just released a book 
in which he describes Solomon and David as mythical inventions, fantasy of Jewish imagination, golden figures like heroic Greek gods and heroes projected back onto a hoary mythological past. That is the approach to 1 Kings 1 that is dominant in many liberal seminaries, coming in many evangelical seminaries, and popular in the academic press and marketplace. What we are studying as history is faint myth and really not accurate or real at all. Take any questions if you have them. If not, then you're welcome to take your break. All right, as we come back together, let's begin to look at some of the details uh, verse by verse uh, throughout this chapter, beginning at verse 1. We're told that David is old. How old is David? And he replied that he is 70 years old. Because you remember 2 Samuel 5, verses 4 and 5, which indicates that he reigned seven years in Hebron, actually seven and a half and three years in Jerusalem, and died at age 70 because he began to reign at age 30 and reigned for 40 years. Now, verse 1 also indicates that In his old age, David has a problem. It is a problem of old age. He can get no heat. He cannot keep warm. There is no heat in him, so there is no heat around him. He cannot insulate himself with his own body heat, and consequently the clothes here are not the clothes that he wears as king. They are the bed clothes under which he sleeps or under which he lays. He cannot get any warmth even from the bed clothes because there's no warmth in his own frail body. The solution to David's problem is another warm body. An attendant. Again, I point out that I do not like that word nurse in some of the modern English versions since it connotes something that is not accurate to what the function of Avishag is. A warm body to provide heat, which David's body cannot provide. I note here an expression from uh, Joseph Hall, Bishop Joseph Hall, 17th century. Uh, commentator in his work, Contemplations on the Old and New Testament, which I find uh, quite useful. Uh, Hall makes this comment. A young virgin was sought not for the heat of lust, but for the heat of light. Not for the heat of lust, but for the heat of life. Life, warmth, and life for David. Now, in verse 3, we are introduced to Abishag and to the village of Shunem. She is a Shunammite. 
which is a village about seven miles southeast of Nazareth in Galilee, a village which will be visited by the prophet Elisha. Also in this king's corpus, 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha will raise a widow's son from the dead in the village of Shunem, the Shunammite widow's son. Well, why do we have this introduction to Avishag? You say to me it's obvious she's going to keep David warm. But what about Bathsheba? Could Bathsheba not keep David warm? Well, apparently she has the same problem as David. She has no heat either. And so a a young, warm virgin is sought. Well, why does our narrator bring Avishag on the stage at this point in the drama? Well, first of all, her role is intertwined with David, as you'll notice in verses 1 to 4 and verse 15. But her role is also intertwined with Adonijah as 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 to 25 will indicate. The the plot conflict between Adonijah and Solomon will include Avishag, both analeptically here and proleptically with respect to chapter 2. And that plot interface, that plot interface contains a mirror of the reversal in the narrative drama. David's possession of Avishag provides him heat to support his life. And Adonijah, his attempt to possess Avishag provides him with a sentence of death. These are life and death issues, life and death narratives. We meet Avishag at the outset of our narrator's account of David's demise because she is the character common to the protagonist and antagonist in this drama. David's life interfaces with Avishag. Adonijah's death interfaces with Avishag. With verse 5, we turn our attention to Adonijah proper. Why does he declare, I will be king? He makes the claim because he is next in line. The order of the birth of David's sons, recorded in 2 Samuel 3, 4, lists those who were born in Hebron while he ruled in Hebron for seven years. The firstborn was Amnon. What has happened to Amnon? He has been killed. The secondborn is Kiliav. What has happened to Kiliav? We're not told, but it is likely that he is dead too, perhaps even died as an infant. The thirdborn is Absalom, and you know Absalom's end. He has been killed And so the fourth in line is Adonijah, 
and that is the reason that he makes the claim, all the others are out of the picture, which is one of the reasons that we are certain that Kiliov is dead, because Adonijah is making this bold claim. But why does our narrator report the chariots, the horsemen, and the 50 runners in this verse? Because he is mirroring by narrative ripple Absalom, as we observed in the first hour, 2 Samuel 15, verse 1. We have, if you will, an instant replay in Adonijah of the dead Absalom. Are there any other resemblances between Adonijah and Absalom? Notice verse 6. He is handsome. Was not Absalom handsome? Notice also verse 6. He is unrestrained. Was not Absalom unrestrained? Mirror of Absalom reflected in Adonijah. Adonijah replaying Absalom. Our narrator even mentions Absalom to underscore the similarity in character. Notice verse 6. I want to point out a very small framing device in verses 5 and 6, where the mother of Adonijah brackets her son's brash audacity and overindulged obstinacy. She who bore him, Hagith, verse 5, she who gave him birth after Absalom, verse 6. This brash and audacious, handsome son, like handsome Absalom, is a rerun of his half-brother. He exalts himself against his living father, parading himself through the streets as the poster boy of an ensuing coup d'etat. I and no one else will be king. That is the force of the emphatic first-person personal pronoun in the Hebrew text of verse 5. I and no one else. As his decrepit father lies in his palace shivering with cold, Adonijah is hot to advertise his royal ambitions by parading through the streets of Jerusalem in grand display. And the impotent David is no more able to restrain this newest filial upstart than he was the previous Adonis, whom he also coddled, indulged, spoiled, and refused to restrain. That paternal dereliction cost him one son. It appears David will be forced to endure a rerun with Absalom's alter ego. Rebellion, turmoil, political division, a peril of his own crown, if not his own life, all because of a child upon whom he set no limits. Set no limits on a child, and that child will exercise its limitless depravity when it matures. After all, 
The child has been well taught. Indulgence allowed means indulgence pursued. Adonijah is acting in character. The character of a child raised without restraint, without discussions of his sinful motivations. Why did you do that? What inside your disposition, your character, what inside your heart caused you to do that? Yes, the heart of a child is determined, determined by its willful disposition. And Christian parents need to learn to discuss willful disposition as a mirror of a child's heart. If they do not, they coddle and indulge and spoil with no reflection of the heart of God or the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ or the heart of heaven as the mirror in which the child is to see its own heart. Indulgence and coddling is destructive. It was to Absalom. It was to Adonijah. The rerun of Absalom in Adonijah also extends to the reach of their over-exalted self. We noted that Absalom wanted nothing less than David's crown. The renegade son plotting to assume his father's role, even if he has to kill him to get it. Adonijah follows in his train. Both sons are rebels with the same cause. They want to be David. No, they don't want to imitate their father in emulation of his character, his gracious heart, his penitent spirit, his God-bundled life. Indeed not. They want his power. They want his prestige. They want his throne so as to replace and displace him. Out of their hateful contempt for their father, they want nothing less than to displace and replace him with self, with egocentric, anthropocentric self. There is no theocentric disposition in them, no Christocentric disposition in them. There is only self-disposition in them, and that disposition is fatal. It is fatal. And Adonijah, self-absorbed Adonijah, recruits Joab and Abiathar for his coup. Joab for his military prowess, Abiathar for the endorsement of religion. Oh, how useful religion is when it serves self-absorbed political ends. It did for Richard Nixon as he hypocritically trailed Billy Graham's crusades around the nation in the fall presidential campaign of 1968. How often he planned to come into the crusade arena 15 or 20 minutes after it had started so that all would be stopped 
And the cameras would be focused and the attention would be upon him as he walked across the floor, across the gridiron, as the case may be, and took his place and folded his hands in apparent pious, godly prayer alongside of Billy Graham and the other nobles on the stage. Stage indeed, staged religion. As we know, the vermin and vitriol that came out of that man's mouth and the deceit that was in his heart and the hypocrisy that oozed from his personal character. And what of Bill Clinton? Bill Clinton and his photo ops, as he exited from church on Sundays while he was president of the United States, with his Bible dutifully and obviously tucked under his arm, all the while seducing and reducing women to shame and vile degradation. There is something very appropriate in the fact that Billy Graham and Bill Clinton were the eulogists at Richard Nixon's funeral. Something very appropriate indeed. Religion is always useful to the political upstart. The ruler drawn and driven by lust, lust for power, lust for control, the lust for dominance, the lust for change. David learns at last that he has been used. He has been used. Used by Joab. All those years, Joab had used him. Used him to gain position, power, ruthless dominance for Joab. And Abiathar, either a dupe of Joab or a religious figure who duped the worshipers at the Lord's tabernacle. That Abiathar joins this revolt tips the balance in the nefarious direction. David installed him priest after the massacre of Nob. He remains the survivor with an agenda. An agenda to ensure his control of the religious symbols of the empire, the ark, the vessels of sacrifice, the priestly mediation for the king and the citizens of Israel, Judah. Abiathar at last is revealed as a religious man driven by an agenda. Joab and Abiathar at last show that they were loyal to David because he served their own ends. And so it came to pass that those who appeared to love David for himself revealed themselves for the hypocrites they always were. In fact, they loved David only for how they could use him. And when they could no longer use him, they revealed their hearts, their hearts of contempt, disloyalty, and treachery to the king who had treated them so well and patiently. David, old and frail, learns at long last that Joab in particular never loved him. Joab only found David useful to his own ulterior purposes. 
how sadly tragic that we finally learn at last how we have been used by those who have seen us in pawns in their own game of manipulation, dominance, and control. David finally saw it on his deathbed. I have already commented on the contrast between the invited and the disinvited in verses 8 and 9. There is actually an alternating symmetry between the Adonijah party and the Solomon party in the verses 7 to 10. Those named in verse 7 are present at the anti-coronation. Those named in verse 8 are not present at the anti-coronation. Those included are listed in verse 9 in contrast to those excluded in verse 10. You will notice the last name in verse 7 is Adonijah. The last name in verse 10 is Solomon. The doubled symmetry is bracketed by the chief antagonist and protagonist. Now, most of these names we know already, but what about Shimei in verse 8? He is certainly not Shimei who cursed David at Bahurim. And what about Rei in verse 9? We know absolutely nothing about him. He is never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And so these two individuals are complete unknowns to us. So why does Adonijah omit Solomon from the guest list? When all his other half-brothers, the king's sons, notice verse 9, all his other half-brothers are present. Why does he leave Solomon off the list? Because he knows. He knows that Solomon is the heir apparent. He knows it. And that damning omission on Adonijah's part is an indication that the one who would know that this is a charade, the one who would know that this is a charade is conveniently not present so that he will not blow the whistle on the farce. He's left off the list because he knows too much. We come to the dialogue, the series of dialogues, verses 11 to 31, which involve Nathan, Bathsheba, and David in the intrigue. The central issue throughout is David's sworn oath, his sworn oath that Bathsheba's son, verse 12, who is David's son, verse 13, is the legitimate successor to his father. Verse 13 has God's prophet Nathan affirm that he is aware of David's sworn oath. How does he know this? Can you cite a passage in which David explicitly and literally promises the throne to Solomon? Can you thumb back and find a passage? No, you cannot, for there is no proof text passage of David's sworn oath. And how does Nathan know it? 
Well, there are at least four options in answering that question. First of all, David told him, though it's not recorded in Scripture. Or, second of all, Bathsheba told him that David told her, though it's not recorded in Scripture. Or third option, Nathan was present when David and Bathsheba were discussing this and the promise was made. He was an ear witness to the promise, though it's not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. And the fourth option, the fourth option is that it was revealed to him. And if we ask ourselves, when may it have been revealed to Nathan, we suggest 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 to 25, where on the birth of Solomon, it was revealed that his name would be Yedidiah, the beloved of God. Is it conceivable that in the revelation of that name, beloved of God, that Nathan was assured that this was the successor of David upon the throne of Israel and Judah? While modern liberals maintain that Nathan invented this story, he invented the story in order to ensure Solomon's succession. And so the modern liberal makes God's prophet a liar, an outright liar. The liberal makes the prophet of God the Lord a liar. But as one writer has noted himself, no conservative, as one writer has noted, this is completely out of character for Nathan. Well, the liberal certainly doesn't care about having a character out of character as long as it fits his own agenda. Perhaps in character for lying liberals, but not for noble Nathan. Now, in support of Nathan's integrity here, David confirms the oath, verse 30, and affirms that he had indeed vowed by the Lord God of Israel that Solomon would be king after him in Jerusalem. So if Nathan is lying, then David is lying. And David is lying twice over because he asserts that he swore by the Lord God of Israel that Solomon would be king, which if he did not so swear, he has sworn God's name in vain and is guilty of misrepresenting the covenant with the Lord as well as a third commandment of the Decalogue. So if we're going to spin out liars here, we've got all kinds of moral, decrepit, and depraved complications. Who is the truth teller in this scenario? If the liberals are right, Adonijah is a veritable angel. David, Nathan, and Bathsheba are the minions of hell, and Solomon steals his brother's birthright, Jacob Redivivus. Oh, these liberals, they watch too many movies where the good guys are gangsters and the gangsters like the Sopranos have hearts of gold. Ah! And so much for the Never Never Land in which liberals are condemned to tilt at windmills forever, ever like Don Quixote 
but the windmills of their minds keep churning, turning, spurning, spurning the straightforward reading of the text, spurning, churning, overturning the truth of the word of God. So Nathan affirms the oath. David confirms the oath. And Bathsheba joins the list of witnesses to the oath, verse 17. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be established. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be established. Deuteronomy 19.15, Matthew 18.16, 2 Corinthians 13.1, 1 Timothy 5.19, Q. E-D. Q-E-D. Please notice one of the motifs which runs through these dialogues. It is the phrase, king after me shall sit on my throne. You'll find it in verse 13, 17, 24, 30, and with a slight variation in verse 35. It is a phrase which is on Nathan's lips, Bathsheba's lips, and David's lips. It is at the heart of Nathan's speech to Bathsheba, Bathsheba's speech to David, and Nathan's confirmatory speech to David, and David's speech to to Bathsheba. As we trace the structure of each speech from verse 11 to verse 30, this phrase is unvaried, immutable, like the covenant promise of God that his elect would sit upon the throne of Israel. There are some rhetorical additions in the speeches as they are delivered. Nathan's Have you not, my Lord, in verse 13, becomes Bathsheba's, my Lord, you swore, verse 17. Nathan's, why then has Adonijah become king, verse 13, becomes Bathsheba's, now behold, Adonijah is king, verse 18. And Nathan's again, have you said Adonijah shall be king, verse 24? The rhetorical differences are recognitions of David's ultimate authority, And they are in deference to David's ultimate authority. David may be old, very old. He may need the warmth of another body for his continuing vitality, but he needs no reminder that he has sworn an oath. He has sworn an oath that Solomon will take his place on his throne. Verse 35. What he does not know is that Adonijah has usurped the prerogative of his own divinely sanctioned promise. But when he is informed of what he does not know, what he knows is put into action, and dramatic action at that. The David who calls Bathsheba in verse 28, then calls Zadok in verse 32. Notice the symmetry there. That is a David proactive, proactive for his oath. He may be passive in his bedchamber, absorbing the heat of another, but he is stirred to action 
at the shocking report of yet another attempted coup from yet another renegade usurper, his own son once more. David is roused to action and barks out order after order, direction after direction in verses 28 to 35. The flesh may be weary, but the mind is still vigorous. David will yet once more be David and act decisively to preserve the promise of the Lord God of Israel. Let my son Solomon ride on my mule. Let him ride out to Guyon's spring. Let the oil of anointing be poured out upon him and blow the trumpet. Blow the trumpet with a shout. Long live King Solomon. Let the earth shake and let the air resound with the sound of the trumpet. And let the people rejoice with the sound of music. And let all Israel in earth and sky echo and re-echo, Long live the King of Shalom. Long live the King Solomon. Displace and replace David with Adonijah? Never. David will displace and replace Adonijah with Solomon. Long live Adonijah, they shout. Long live Solomon shall be shouted with such an uproar that the earth will shake, the ground will be split, the terrors of the deep will be unleashed against those who oppose the Lord's anointed. Shake and tremble, Joab, you traitor, you murderer, you manipulator, you power broker. Shake and tremble, Joab, as you hear the trumpet, the last trumpet sounding for you, Joab, and the terrors of judgment day advancing upon your head. And now Adonijah must be told. Adonijah must be told what he does not know. He must receive a messenger with good news, verse 42. Usurpation and presumption are joined by the umbilical cord of self-delusion. Blind, insouciant self-delusion. And the day of self-elevation becomes the day of fear and terror. Verse 49 and 50. You sought to make yourself king without King David. Lo, Adonijah, David has made Solomon king by himself. You sought to trump David, Adonijah. This day, Adonijah, David has trumped you. You do well to quake with terror, fear gripping your soul as your hands grip the horns of the altar. What is it you lay hold of, Adonijah? The mercy displayed at the altar of the Lord? Is it God's mercy you lay hold of? Or is it the asylum, the refuge, the plea for clemency to save yourself, to preserve your physical life, to extend yourself so as to avoid the reckoning of this judgment day. 
Ah, Adonijah, do you hold fast the horns of the altar as you let loose your rebel heart, pleading with the Lord God at the place of sacrifice to forgive your sin, to create in you a new heart, to take away your heart of ruthless pride and give you a heart of broken, contrite servanthood? Ah, Adonijah, is your silence before the Lord a mirror of his silence to you? On this day of judgment. Depart from my altar, you hypocrite. For you think only of the things of the flesh, your flesh, that your flesh shall be spared from the sword. Well, Adonijah, you shall be spared. Even your hypocrisy shall be spared now. But the not yet is before you, Adonijah. Sin is crouching at the door, Adonijah, and you, rebellious son, you, Adonijah, still remain the servant of sin, the slave of self, the scheming, plotting snake who plays the piety card at my altar when your heart, your black heart, remains self-centered, egocentric, narcissistic. Beware, Adonijah, there is yet a final judgment day before you. No mercy on that day. No clemency on that day. No more hypocrisy on that day. For on that day you will be exposed as the fraud, the rebel, the sham that you are, on that day the sword will devour without mercy. First Kings chapter 1 closes with the scene, antagonist prostrate before protagonist. Adonijah humbled before his king. Or is he? Is he humbled before his king? Or is he merely groveling for his devious hide? Is the man upon the throne before whom he bows his king? Or is he just his brother? Just his brother, who may yet be unseated by another ploy, another scheme, another plot from a plotting, scheming, devious brother who still says in his heart, I and I alone will be king. Stay tuned for the rest of the story next week. One final note. This chapter opens with David as king, verse 1. It closes with Solomon as king, verse 53. The father, as the narrative opens, the son of the father, 
as the narrative closes. That was the promise, the promise of 2 Samuel 7, 14. The mirror of the divine promise that God would be father and David's seed would be son. That promise is reflected anew with the son of the father seated upon his throne. The eschatological mirror, indeed the remarkable ontological mirror, reflected in the protological mirror. And I'll be happy to take any questions or comments you may wish to make.